Welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, and welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, Bill. Burke, how are you today? I'm doing all right. I hope you are. I'm doing great. I really enjoyed... Uh... Yesterday, Burke and I were uh, in Charlotte doing an investor symposium, and, I, and Mr. Kuntz, I thought you, you you said some very profound statements yesterday. Well, you're very charitable. Let's go ahead and use them all up. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you did. You, re- you did a great job. Well, thank you. I enjoyed, enjoyed hearing your I your appreciate talk, it. So. Well, we are joined today by a much more interesting guest. Indeed. Uh, a very indeed. special guest, a longtime friend of Trust Company, Chris Muma, Executive Director of the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence, to talk about her work in an area that is one of the most difficult and yet at times one of the most electrifying areas of justice, and that is seeking to ob- obtain justice for people in prison for crimes they did not commit. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We are glad you're here. Very glad to have you, Chris. Chris and I have known each other for, gosh, quite some time now. Long time. And um, I know her husband, Mitch, very well. He's a terrific guy, and I've been very successful in his own right. Um, um, used to be the, the former CEO of InterSouth, or um, and has done a lot of great things in his career. But Mitch, you have an uh, I mean, Mitch, I mean, Chris, you <laughs> have Mitch's, Mitch's wife. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Man, no, no, no. I, I, th- I was think other people would say the other thing on, on the other <laughs> yeah, side. But, might go the other way around. Um, Chris, you have an amazing background. I know you're I know you're Tar Heel and all that good stuff. But talk a little bit just about you know your educational background and and becoming an, an attorney and and what and what drove you to to get involved with and create all this sure it's kind of it's actually kind of an unusual path um because i yes i am a double degree tar heel but i'm not right. allowed to talk about that at home yeah. because all three kids and mitch went yeah. to duke are huge um, dukes so, yeah uh, it's it's a, divided. It, it's a secret um <laughs> but uh, i have I started in business. I was in finance for nine years at Northern Telecom um, and worked on contracts and the financial side of contract negotiations and decided to go to law school to do corporate law and um, had no intention of going down the route that I'm on. Um, I uh, clerked at the Supreme Court for um, Court of Appeals for about six months and Supreme Court for about two and a half years. And you know, in business, it's all about continuous improvement. It's all about quality and customer service and improving the bottom line. And, and I got to the justice system. It's, that's just not what it's about. It's not about continuous improvement. It's about, this is the way we've always done it. So this is the way we're going to continue to do it. And, um, and I worked on a couple cases at the Supreme Court where I really felt like there was a problem. Uh, with that the person could possibly be innocent and that the the ruling was incorrect. Um, and I was basically told that's not our problem. Like, that's not our jurisdiction. And when you ask, well, whose jurisdiction is it? There wasn't anybody. Mm-hmm. So um, what that's year kind are we of, talking about here? Now? Um, let's see, this was... This was 2000, okay. um, uh, and I had a criminal law professor, uh, Rich Rosen, who okay. was the rep- he was the attorney for Ronald Cotton. Ronald Cotton was the first DNA exoneration in North Carolina, and um, Rich was kind of a mentor of mine, and 
I talked to him about these cases. And at that time, they were starting the thought of establishing the Center on Actual Innocence. And he said, why don't you come run it and work for free for a while instead of taking your corporate attorney position? And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Especially the run it for free part. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually ran it for, for uh, pro bono for 17 years before it grew to the point that um, I could finally start taking a paycheck. What was the aha moment for you as far as deciding this? I really, you know, what, what was the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, a calling? I mean, I mean, you know, somebody has to to do what you you did to give up a very high profile situation and and go into this. What when did it really hit hit you between the eyes? Or for lack um, of a better word, I, I think. I mean, I've always been a fix it kind of person, mm-hmm. and I've always been a uh, collecting broken birds kind of person. So I think from a very young age, I was the one that brought the kittens home when the mother was killed, and huh. um, so I think um, there was there was one case in particular that drove me, and I still and I still have that case that I I'm still trying to get him out. I can't. I know he's innocent. Um, there's no avenues to prove it. But um, he is in his 70s now, and, and I mm. think it's um, important for him to, to live some period of time uh, outside of a prison before he passes. Yeah. So we're, we're wow. trying all options. Um, but uh, it, it, there are so many problems with the justice system that people don't understand. We have the greatest system in the world. There's no question about it. Um, but even when you have the greatest system, if there's errors and there's human error and it's run by humans um, and there's things you can do, then um, I'm driven to try and make them happen. Hmm. When, you, when you say proof of uh, avenues to prove someone's innocence, um, like talk about that a little bit and how that, I mean, you obviously have conviction that this person is innocent of the crimes of which he's accused. Talk about that, you know, the the roadblocks that, that exist for this case. Sure. Well, first, the first thing to understand is that there's a lot of things that lead to convictions, right? So only about 5% of cases go to trial. Um, most people plead guilty and they plead guilty for a lot of different reasons. And some of them include, uh, even when they're innocent, um, they get charges stacked up against them. And so they're looking at 50 years if they go to trial, but, but eight, you know, if they take the plea, um, they're threatened with the death penalty. They're they're they have kids and who they needs mm-hmm. to be taken care of. So there's a lot of reasons that someone um, might take a plea, and then um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong at trials when you have humans all over the place, from law enforcement to scientists to defendants to witnesses and attorneys and judges. Um, so what we do um, is look at the case. Um, after it's gone through appeal, and we are looking for, for avenues, new avenues of evidence. So it has to be some evidence was not considered by the judge or the jury, um, which causes us to close a, a lot of cases mm-hmm. where we might have doubt because there's not an avenue for new evidence. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a lot of investigation Mm-hmm. Um, and identification of the there's typical causation issues in wrongful conviction cases. So you kind of look for those red flags when we're when we're screening the cases mm-hmm. that come through. I remember, at least from my perception, when when, when first time I remember m- meeting you and we talked, we were having a conversation about what you do and everything. And and I remember the whole DNA thing had had really just how long has DNA been a 
you know, been a huge element in, in, in turning cases and things. But I remember that that had been a huge. Well, the first DNA ex- exoneration deal. case in the country was 1989. Right. Um, but we didn't start using DNA in earnest um, in, in our lab until the early 2000s. Hmm. Um, so there was a lot of cases that went through the system mm-hmm. with tool mark evidence, bite mark evidence, uh, shoe impression, microscopic hair comparison, all of these things that we now know because of DNA are not as reliable as we once thought they were. Yeah. But DNA is only in a small percentage of cases. Um, and so what, what you do is when you have a case where it's, you have a proven wrongful conviction with DNA, which the biggest skeptics can't argue with because the full loop of justice is closed, right? Mm -hmm. The the innocent person is exonerated. The true perpetrator is identified. And that person was on the streets committing more crimes. The victim actually gets the justice they deserved from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then you might have people who are willing to look at it and say, okay, how did this happen in the first place? How is this person convicted? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where we identify the causation issues like, misidentification, which mm-hmm. is which is a key causation issue, uh, false confessions, the use of jailhouse informants, uh, faulty scientific evidence, misconduct, mm-hmm. ineffective assistance of counsel. So those are the red flags I'm talking about. Yeah. That, go ahead, Burke. That's I, a I lot to throw out. No, 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 no. That's, 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 that's good. You know, I mean, it's, I'm just fascinated by the whole, uh, the whole enterprise and, uh, and, and, you know, how much of it is, how much of it is, you know, finding the true per- perpetrator who's been on the streets. I mean, that sounds sounds like that that's become an avenue that you know, with the advent of DNA, is you know, contributes to you know some successes on your part. It sounds like it. It absolutely has, and we have identified um, Dwayne Dale, who's one of your clients, um, who spent 19 years in prison for a rape he did not commit. Um, the DNA that exonerated him identified the true perpetrator who had committed other sexual um, crimes in the mean, while, while Dwayne was serving those 19 years. Uh, and the victim did finally get justice. Um, so DNA helps, um, but it um, because it's only in a small number of cases, we really need to be willing to look at the causation issues in the non-DNA cases mm-hmm. and understand that these things can happen. Well, you know, to me, the, what, what one thing is, crazy to me and when you hear about some of these people who were who were convicted and were not supposed to be convicted it, I, I've been to several presentations where um, where a, a, some sort of psychology thing where they show you a video and then at the end of the video they ask you to count how many people were wearing a red shirt and and they have a bunch of people walking by and everything and like nobody in the room there were like 40 of us in the room and nobody got it right. I mean, mm-hmm. not one person got it right. And it was like there were only two people on sure. screen at the table. And they, it, it just shows you how the mind, how, well, what people see and what their mind, the connection. Right. Doesn't. Well, we're, our minds are not recorders. Right. And we have biases and right. and and things that impact our, our memory and our perceptions, which is all things that this is about science, right? So these are all things, the science of memory is what we looked at in North Carolina when we changed the, got the law changed on the way lineups are conducted. So that law passed in 2007, I think it was. And we were the first state in the country um, to change the way we do lineups. We know so they're no longer done where the pictures are shown side by side. 
um, but they're shown one at a time with an independent administrator to try and eliminate what the science has established as things that can influence a, a misidentification. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Well, talk about how, how the center operates and, and, um, and you know, how you, how you, A, you know, keep the lights on, but B, you know, what, what the process is in terms of, uh, you know, how these cases come across your desk. Or, you know, are they, are they, you know, inbound off the website or, or are they referred to you by other people in the legal community? Just talk about how, you know, how the, the model runs. Sure, sure. And let me, the, the reason it was established um, in 2000 when I talked to Rich Rosen was because once exoneration started happening around the country, you know, inmates, if they're innocent, they're going to write everybody. Um, so if there's an innocence organization in New York and Oklahoma and mm. North Carolina, they're going to write everybody. So we wanted to eliminate duplication of effort. Um, and so if, if uh, someone was applying to UNC, if someone was applying to Duke, if someone was applying somewhere else, we could track those cases in one place and make sure there was not duplication of effort. Um, so that's where I came in to kind of consolidate the intake. And when I started, I think we had, I think we had at least 1500 applications in backlog. Wow. Oh, gracious. And the year, the, the first years we were getting about 1200 more applications a year. And how many from out of state? Um, quite a few, uh-huh. but, but, but a lot of North Carolina. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and now we get about... How did you possibly even, you know, go through all that? That's... Well, l- law students. Yeah. You know, oh, so that's the thing. Okay. We partner with law schools. We, um, the center currently par- partners with UNC, NCCU, Elon, and Campbell Law Schools. And oh, law students smart. are anxious to get their noses sure, sure. out of the books and into a real case. So we have a great resource and, and a lot of students who... Did you organize their... that? I mean, that, so that we, whole process? We run all of that. And, okay. and so we probably work with probably... Mm, 200 volunteers a year that's great in the through the law schools and they get their pro bono hours and we get uh, mm-hmm. a valuable resource um so we're, we're down to about 300 applications a year i like to think that's because of the changes in the law that we've been able to get through also uh dna testing dna now eliminates 25% of suspects mm-hmm. um so before they go to trial so instantly you got to think yeah. about what happened to those people before we had DNA, yeah, right? Wow. Um, so the system is is working a little better on the, on the front end. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's still all the things we need to do on the front end. Um, it's the back end that is the problem that, that has actually gotten, in the 23 years I've been doing this, or 22 years, it's actually gotten worse. Um, uh, tell, what exactly do you mean by back end? The back end being after someone's convicted, uh-huh. um, the willingness of the system... Uh, and the this people in it to to take a look back like we're very uh, okay the justice system is based on finality it's a it's an overloaded underfunded system so we want to move it's next case right mm-hmm. so uh, when you say listen I need you to look at this case from 20 years ago um, there's not a whole lot of interest in North Carolina now there's conviction integrity units popping up around the country I think there's 52 of them now and I think this is the important cultural change we need to have in North Carolina, where prosecutors are saying, I'm the minister of justice. If there's been a wrongful conviction, it's my responsibility to make Mm -hmm. sure it gets fixed. And they are working cooperatively with innocence organizations or public defender offices to review these cases and, and seek justice when the evidence uh, supports Mm -hmm. that there's been a wrongful conviction. We we need more of that culture in North Mm -hmm. Carolina. 
So um, you talked a little bit about the factors that create these mis- mis- miscarriages. Um, you know, I mean, it's a human process. There's going to be human error, but maybe outside of DNA, you know, talk about you know some of the areas where uh, you know that might trigger a red flag when you're going through your review. Sure, um, jailhouse informants is a big big uh, causation mm-hmm. issue, and we actually have a bill that's got gotten through the Senate uh, this session. Um, and we're hoping to get it through the House and get it signed into um, law, uh, where interviews with jailhouse informants will have to be recorded. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the recording issue is kind of interesting. You know, we're all we're so used to being recorded, right? We're recorded at the grocery store, the bank, walking down the street. Yeah. They're using recordings to solve cold cases all the time, but only interrogations are recorded. So you can have a six-hour interview mm-hmm. before something goes into an interrogation, and that person is behind the closed door of a police in a police department, mm-hmm. and nothing's being recorded when, uh, when yeah. it's really literally a, a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think one of the things we really need to do is expand the use of recording in places of detention. So we're not... You know, just let's take a baby step right. and do it with suspects. Let's do all juvenile mm-hmm. uh, because we know how susceptible they are. Um, but right now the bill is um, for interviews of jailhouse informants. Mm-hmm. And that's to get on the record, you know, where did, what information do they actually start with? Mm-hmm. Um, what access did they have to information? What are they asking for in return for providing information? Right. Um, all of that's really important to um, establish the Context. credibility of that jailhouse mm-hmm. informant. Uh, Greg Taylor, another yeah. one of your clients, yeah. um, he had a co-defendant whose charges were dismissed, and Greg got life. The only difference between their two cases was a jailhouse informant. Wow. Right. That's incredible. Yeah, and I think about, gosh, Greg's been a client for a long time now, and, um, I mean, we're honored to to work. I mean, Chris has, Chris has sent several people who have been wrongly um, convicted of stuff, right? Where, you know, we're able to be their their fiduciary and help them re-enter the world, and um, and it's been an honor to work with those. Yeah, people. Yeah, we definitely um, need to talk about why that's necessary. But let yeah. me let me go back to a couple of the just the jailhouse informants yeah. misidentification. Yeah. Um, the the forensic science, just what we've learned about the forensic sciences that are not reliable because they've not been properly tested. Um, uh, tunnel vision is just a natural thing that happens. And, and again, Greg's case is another great example, right? You had a, you had a, a dead body and, a, and his truck stuck in the mud. So uh, the tunnel vision of that investigation, they basically decided you got the body, you got the truck, and case closed. We mm-hmm. just need to find out who owns the truck. Um, so getting past tunnel vision with training uh, on biases, using checklists um, when you do an investigation are kind of solutions you can have. Uh, ineffective assistance of counsel is a huge issue. We've gotten made some progress in North Carolina with training and, and increasing the standard to for who can be appointed to cases. But um, ineffective assistance counsel is one of the lead issues we see in cases. And it's a very high burden to get over in the appellate courts. Um, and then there's misconduct. There's bad apples in every profession from sure. attorneys to dentists. So um, we have to acknowledge that there's going to be some bad apples mm-hmm. and put controls in place to, to make sure mm-hmm. we're, we're overseeing that process. So anybody who's listening to this is going to, you know, when their ears, their ears are going to perk up when they hear dead body and truck. So yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, using his case as an example, like, you know, how talk about the circumstantial nature of, 
of you know what happened and and um uh people can get a little bit better idea about you know how this um you know how the circumstances of his arrest you know fed into a conviction that was ultimately incorrect. Sure. And there's there's actually a great documentary out there that people can watch um, called In Pursuit of Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's on IMDb. Um, yeah, and it's great. it tells the full story of his case. But um, really, he was out with a friend. Um, they, they were doing some partying. And um, Greg had just gotten a new four-wheel vo- drive vehicle and tried to tried his hand at um, doing some four-wheeling and, and got about 10 feet before mm-hmm. he bottomed out, so not very successful. And um, and they it was late, at th- about 3.30 in the morning, they decided to leave the truck there and come back to get it the next morning. Um, they walked down, it's just, it was, this was downtown Raleigh, Blunt Street, mm-hmm. and they walked down a gravel road that they had taken the truck down. They saw something in the cul-de-sac there, um, they, Greg thought it was a roll of carpet. Uh, Johnny then saw a hand, um, and they thought maybe it was somebody who had OD'd, but they had been drinking and partying and, and decided they should just move on and not stop. Um, they waved down a ride very close to the crime scene. Um, the next morning the body was found, uh, and, and then Greg's truck was found 150 mm-hmm. yards or something from, from the body. Um, and Greg actually came down to the crime scene at like 7.30 that morning and said, I need to get through to get to my truck. And um, and they said, can you come downtown and answer some questions? Uh, and he never went home again. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, and criminal investigations can become runaway trains very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's important to have effective assistance of counsel to try and, and put some roadblocks out there. Um, and, and it's important to have, um, you know, transparency and a a lot of other things. Justice system has a tremendous amount of power and who is this Spider-Man with, with, uh, great power comes great responsibility. And that's something that we need to, to build into the system a little more. You know, in our business, and well, in every business, really, the, the, the saying is, you know, you, you show me the incentives and I'll show you the results. And this doesn't sound like the incentives um, in, uh, in law enforcement are always optimal for, uh, you know, folks who, you know, are in, in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, you know, their, their incentive, um, the, I have tremendous respect mm-hmm. for law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Their jobs are very difficult, Incredibly difficult and have been made more difficult recently. Um, and, um, they are, their incentive is to solve crime, but they need to recognize their human fallibilities sure. at sure. the same time that they practice that incentive. You know, so you've alluded to the fact that we've we've had the privilege to work uh, with some of the people that have been exonerated because of your efforts on their behalf. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the challenges that these and other individuals face when returning to society. Sure, and, and you know, it's important to recognize that that each one of them is so incredibly different. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, Greg Taylor. I think I started out uh, working with him on his account here, but. Uh, Greg was in telecommunications. That's the other thing about his case is, you know, he he could be your brother, he could be your uncle. Yeah, he's um, a bright guy. He yeah. he was married to his high school sweetheart. He had two cars and a boat, two cats and a dog. Um, great job. Mm-hmm. So you know, if it can happen to him, it can happen to anybody. Right. But um, Greg is in, in, incredibly intelligent um, and has incredible character, which is what 
caused him to go to prison and his and his co-defendant to have his charges dismissed because Greg would not cave to the pressure that most people would cave to. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's able to manage his own situation. He's able to, when someone says, I need money, he's able to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of people... Uh, and a lot of people who are exonerated or released from prison do not get anything. So mm-hmm. it's important for people to understand that less than half get anything at mm-hmm. all. And, and explain, if you will, where does that money come from when they do? Where is that money coming from? So um, if they're pardoned by the governor right. uh, or if they go through the Innocence Inquiry Commission process in North Carolina and are found innocent, there is statutory compensation, which is kind of a minimal compensation that basically gets them on their feet. But then if there's been misconduct in a, in a case, there can be a civil suit. And so the money usually comes from civil suits. Now, my personal opinion is the civil suits are what is getting in the way of the progress in the justice system, because why should law enforcement or prosecution want to help when uh-huh. at the end of the road of them helping, there's going to be this civil suit at the end. Um, so I, th- I think there's ways to get around that. Texas has changed their compensation law to get around that. Um, and... Um, so I think that's an, an interesting side of it that we really need to look at. But um, so the money comes from the fact that in Greg's case, um, the state lab uh, didn't completely result report the results and testing in his case. And uh, at trial, there was evidence presented that the victim's blood was on his truck when in fact, it not only was it not the victim's blood, it wasn't human blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had this, very serious misrepresentation of evidence and that and that can lead to liability. And that's a, such a massive error. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. that, that was probably the convicting detail. I mean, it, the blood on the truck. Right. Well, and, and, you know, in Dwayne's case, there's, there was a lot of factors. He looked for the evidence for 12 years mm-hmm. that he was told the evidence didn't exist and it was sitting on the shelf the whole time that could have brought him home you know, 12 years instead of 19, you know, so what, mm-hmm. seven years instead of 19 years. And the evidence that was on the shelf was? The exonerating evidence, the the evidence from the 12-year-old child who had been raped. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what exonerated mm-hmm. him and identified the perpetrator. So that's where the civil uh, liability comes mm-hmm. in. And that's where most of the, fu- the funds come from. Okay. So what's important for for some of the people who you ha- that have their accounts with you one is just the the advice that you give them on investment strategy and and making sure that their money is is maximized mm-hmm. um Yeah the pr- cash flow po- planning part has been been help- I think that's been very oh, helpful yeah that also, so the, yeah. so the investment part but then also this the support you give me and them um, and helping to um, with tax returns, <laughs> helping with uh, having bills paid directly from their trust funds, um, uh, allowing us to have allowance kind of programs for them where they get a certain amount of money every every month. And all of those controls are important because one, they've been in prison for a very long time. Two, some of them have intellectual disabilities, which led to their conviction in the first place. Um, three, when there's an announcement that there's been some financial award, you suddenly have quote-unquote friends mm-hmm. and family yes. yeah, they show up, that come they? out of yeah. the woodwork mm-hmm. asking for help. And so they need a, they need a stopgap that, that says, no, they can say, you can't get that from me. You have to go through someone else. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I, you know, I just like to make a comment here. I was I was just thinking about like so Jonathan Henry, one of our colleagues, um, serves as like a Greg's point person with within the firm, and um, and I think John, I mean Jonathan, really, I can't. I can't imagine how good it must make you feel what you do because Jonathan, he, he really loves working with Greg because he feels, you know, cause it's his second chance in life and yeah. helping him achieve and do all his, live his best life that he can with what life he has left. Cause he lost how many years was he in? He was 17, seven, he lost 17 years of his life. And, and from, I know from Jonathan's perspective, he has shared with me how rewarding it is for him to, to, to work with somebody who's been through something like that. So I can't imagine how good you must feel. Well, Jonathan needs to recognize that. I thought Greg is is local, so Jonathan gets to feel that uh-huh. more with Greg. He provides an incredible service to the other ones, too, who yeah. are not local. Right. And um, I mean, I, I sometimes I'm sending Jonathan three, four emails a day because mm-hmm. I've got, I'm trusty for several clients right. and, and working in different areas. And, um, and he's been... Uh, he's an incredible asset to me. I could not manage helping them if I did not have him to help me. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that. That's He'll, he'll be glad to hear that. I'm going to write down the minute we <laughs> talked about Jonathan. He'll be sure to go to that part and, get a, <laughs> and get, receive the compliment. <laughs> what has been the most has, – is is there – I mean, you've, 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 you've changed so many people's lives, Chris, and what you've done. Is, 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 there, is there any one thing that kind of sits – on high with you, you know, the shroud on high of of, of a moment in your career that so you know it really stood out. Yeah, you know? each exoneration, there's there's such different emotions associated with them. Yeah. You know, Dwayne Dale was my first exoneration. Greg's was uh, was one with that was the first case to get through the Innocence Inquiry Commission, which was a statute that I worked on. Um, Joseph Sledge um, was in prison for 37 years. Wow. And so, and he only lived for five years after getting out. Um, so the cases, um, they, they are rewarding. And that day when you walk them out of prison and, they're, and you're able to watch them hug their families mm. um, and, and, you know, get a message that they're just outside looking at the moon at night because they're allowed to. Um, those are incredible. But those days are followed pretty immediately with the days of hardship and the days of adjusting to a society that has changed a lot while they're in prison and, um, and, and not knowing how to live and not knowing what their purpose is anymore. Um, so that there's a lot of difficulties afterwards. You know, somebody like Greg, who now is like, this incredible artist artist and photographer um it's it's great but his story is very very unique um most of them are are full of struggles um we are actually trying now to um build uh after joseph sledge who's the one who was in for 37 years um passed uh we're trying to do something in his honor and we're um trying to build a couple tiny homes called the Joseph Sledge House of Healing where we can we can send or, or have an exoneree go when they first get out and have a social worker there and and have a and have a staff member from the center there and slowly get them into society rather than having them have to jump in so quickly. Um, that makes total sense to me. I mean that's that's a great idea. So yeah, that's it's really it would be really important for us to get this done. Um, so the case, they're kind of a mixed bag, you know, it, it's always, there's always 10, 15 cases 
that where we are 100% convinced they're innocent that are waiting for us to get back to, right? So it's a very short-lived um, moment. Um, so I actually value more the policy changes um, when we can get the laws changed that I know will, will without, in, without decreasing the conviction of the guilty, increase reliability of convictions. I mean, that is a key double-edged sword. You know, we don't want to keep, don't want to impact conviction of the guilty, but we want to make sure that we are not convicting the innocent person. Because I've posed this question to, to other people, and I'll ask, I'll ask both of you, can you tell me something worse than being in prison for life for something that you know you did not do, had nothing to do with, um, and you're in a cell, and you're given told what to eat and what to wear and what to do, and you, your life is in danger every day. Um, I mean, tell me, I, I can't never think of anything worse. Yeah. I can't either. I can't either. Absolutely. I, yeah, yeah. It's, and I, I was just, you know, thinking about coming back, just just the techno- technological changes that we've experienced just in the last 15 years, and if somebody w- went to prison 20 years ago, they come back and there's iPhones and there's all that, just, just, just the little things that we take for granted. Yeah, Greg. When uh, Greg got uh, out and his family took pictures on the digital camera and showed him the picture on the digital camera, he said, "You know, how did that get in there?" Um, sure. Because you know, he went in there was film. Yeah, it's like uh, I'm sure you must hear often, you know, references to you know Shawshank when you know people get institutionalized and they get out and they struggle. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you was, you know, some of the uh, obviously, a lot of folks. You know, Greg's an exception. A lot of folks have these executive function problems when they, you know, when they get out. D- how much of it do you think were pre-existing that contributed to their conviction potentially, or, or, or how much actually, you know, happens inside and then and that you know somehow compounds and becomes a problem on the outside? Well, certainly for Joseph Sledge, after thirty-seven years, it was he was completely institutionalized. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely all. From, from being incarcerated for so long. Um, uh, you, know, be, you know, I've said before, Greg's an exception, so it's really not, I uh, shouldn't even use him as an example. Um, uh, Dwayne Dale, I think it was because of his incarceration, especially when they go in at a very young age. Um, yeah. So Greg, you know, Dwayne was, was 20 uh, when he was arrested. And so when you go in at 20 and you get out at you know, almost 40, um, you've mm. lost some very important informative years and worse, those informative years you were raised in prison. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 it's I hard get, to get, get your down mind on my knees really tonight and just think about it. I mean, thank my lucky stars for my, you know, station in life. Um, you know, you have a very, uh, uh, high profile case now in the case of Daniel green. Um, I don't know how much you can share or want to share, but but uh, certainly I think we all remember where we were when we heard about James Jordan and and the pressure that must have been on the system, uh, you know, to find the murderers of Michael Jordan's father. And now it comes to light, or maybe it's been in, in it's perhaps been in it has come to light a lot earlier for you than a lot for other people that that perhaps um, you know Daniel Green is innocent. Well, I I would I would skip the word perhaps. Okay. Um, I am I am sure that Daniel Green was not there and knew nothing about the shooting mm-hmm. of James Jordan. Um, the um, it's it, because it's a high profile case. Um, it's out of a county where it shouldn't surprise anybody sure. that there could be problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think anybody who 
questions whether a um, a black teenage boy in the 90s could have been wrongfully convicted is not being uh, very realistic. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, Daniel's case is still working its way through the courts. There is another documentary on that case called Moment of Truth. Uh, it is a five-part series that's on um, uh, Amazon, and it's incredibly revealing of what was going on in that county and what was wrong with the evidence that was used to convict Daniel. Was this Robeson County or Cumberland County or this Roberson? Okay, right. Roberson. Mm-hmm. What is the name? What is the name of the documentary? Again? Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth. It's a five-part series, um, and uh, it was actually Capital Broadcasting was involved in producing that. Huh. Um, but yeah, the case is still going on. Um, Daniel is a very intelligent and you know when you're in prison for something you did it's a horrible situation when you're in prison for something you didn't do it's tragedy when you're in prison for killing Michael Jordan's father uh, there's there's no words to describe what you go through I mean God, and, and what prison is he in uh, I'd rather not say okay okay hey, wow yeah um, and so uh, uh, and so that's that's making its way to the system now it, it, yeah, it okay. is. We're waiting for the right. judge. Um, actually, the moment uh-huh. of truth ends with the judge denying mm-hmm. um, the hearing in his case, and that was overturned. Well, what was the tipping point to get him back in the game, so to speak? I mean, um, so I mean, there's there's several pieces of evidence in that case, case that just don't make any sense. Um, one thing that that we found was the autopsy report specifically says there's no bullet hole in the shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, there is bullet hole in his chest, but there's no corresponding bullet hole in the shirt in the, in the autopsy and medical examiner looks for that hole. So it's not like, you know, he could have missed it, right? He makes three different sets of notes saying there's no hole. Um, but at trial there's a hole in the shirt. So how did that hole get there? Mm. Um, the, the connections between Larry Demery, who's the co-defendant and, um, I'll just say some other characters. Sure. And well, there, there was with the sheriff's son, right? The sheriff's mm-hmm. son, Hubert Larry Dees, mm-hmm. and and the sheriff himself. And um, it was just a few years after this conviction that there was Operation Tarnish Badge in that in that county, where I think twenty two officers um, lost their jobs because of the corruption in the departments there. Um, so. Uh, the, there's there's issues with the blood lack of blood evidence. This man was supposedly shot in his car. Uh, the angle of the shooting when we looked at the trajectory does not work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no blood evidence in the car at all. Um, so I'll leave it at that, and hopefully sure. that increases the intrigue enough for people to watch the documentary and learn more about it. Absolutely. Well, we haven't really talked that much about about the Center on Actual Innocence and, and how you operate. I mean... Tell us a little bit about. Um, we talked a little bit about your the pro bono um, resources and students, but but talk about um, you know how how you guys uh, keep the lights on and uh, and um, you know just a little bit more about the operation and sure. that sort of thing. So um, we are a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. I'll throw that out there, mm-hmm. and um, so we we operate on the the goodness of foundations and personal donations. Um, the federal government has actually really stepped up on um, providing grant opportunities, particularly when it comes to the use of DNA, um, because they they want to um, encourage the use of the sciences to make sure that we got these cases right. Um, 
so we started out with nothing. When I started, we were in uh, an office in the basement, you know, with one desk. And um, we, um, importantly, I think 45% of our funding over the last five years has come from exonerees. So it's a it's a pay it forward type situation uh-huh. where they get out, they're exonerated, they want, they know there are other people who are innocent in prison, and they want to give back um, to the center for helping oh, wow. in their cases. So they give, they make donations to the center. And um, that is really was the turning point for us, as far as being able to have an office and hire attorney and other attorneys mm-hmm. and um, an investigator. So they're giving um, help to move the center forward. And the more we can move forward and have more exonerations, the more than we can get per- other personal donations and other foundations interested. So um, uh, it's, it's really been a, that is incredible. Yeah. Reward that, that, that comes rewarding from for them. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, that's kind of, that's a special thing. It really yeah, is. Because they, they, really they, they know what humbling. freedom is. And right. I, I can imagine. I mean, yeah. it's just it's hard to So they're, they're part of our family. They really are. I have mm-hmm. two, uh, two of them are on my board. Um, you know, we're in touch with them all the time. Um, they, they, they do become uh, my broken birds. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, can be the mother they wish they didn't have uh, sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and the mother they love to have sometimes. <laughs> They're always the same person, it seems like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what's, the, what's your website, just so people can, if people are interested, they can look it up? It is uh, org. So North Carolina mm-hmm. Center on ActualInnocence.org. That's fantastic. Yeah. Bill, you have anything else you want to cover? Anything else you want to say? Not really. No, just that I, 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 there's a culture. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the biggest problem in our justice system is the culture, and culture can't be changed without um, leadership. We had great leadership in I Beverly Lake mm-hmm. um, in the early 2000s mm-hmm. on this issue, who was, you know, a strong Republican, strong law enforcement. Um, and he recognized that um, injustice is, is doesn't have a political, uh, it's not Republican, um, it's a right. Democrat or prosecutor right, yeah. defense. Or, um, so uh, we haven't had a leader in this mm-hmm. area. And um, there's a lot of workhorses, mm-hmm. but we, we need a leader. If you, were, if you were the king or queen of the day, I mean, what would be the biggest thing you could change right now? I'd like to be the king maker. Yeah, king So maker. anybody who wants to be the king, okay. you, you got a king maker. Um, the biggest change I would say would be recording of um, okay. all suspects okay. and all juveniles. Right. Um, I think that would be a huge, and it's for public confidence too, right? We want the we want the public when they're serving on the jury to have confidence in the investigation that's been conducted and be, have willingness to convict when they need to convict. Um, when there's an exoneration story in the paper, it says, you know, it took 25 years to prove this person's innocence. That hurts public confidence mm-hmm. in the justice system. Um, so the leadership can build the confidence. And North Carolina was a leader at one point. And we need to get back in that position again. Yeah, the last thing I would I would just say would be, um, you know, our firm we work with affluent individuals, obviously being a being a, a wealth management firm and trust company, and um, and we work with a lot of foundations and endowments, and you know these these 
people that that Chris has helped change their lives, they've come into some significant settlements, and so it is a it's a big issue. Not just come you know in every way, shape, and form of them reentering society, and and then suddenly they've got a they've got a, a pot of money they have yeah. to deal with, and so you know we just play a small role in helping them get their affairs in order and help them manage their. But so their important. Stuff. I mean, and, that, um, the word trust in the company yeah, is that, is there so. is is real. Real uh, perfect word for for what you guys do for the clients. They well, we, they trust you, and we trust you. And um, I certainly they couldn't do it, and I couldn't do it without you. Well, we certainly appreciate your confidence in us and, and our ability to, to do that. So um, we've got for all you do and- more cases in uh, litigation than we've ever had. We have about uh, thirty cases in advanced cases and advanced stages of. Um, investigation litigation. So I would say stay tuned because there's going to be um, some dominoes falling um, very soon. Chris, it's been a pleasure. A I mean, this has been pleasure. this yeah. has been outstanding in every way. Yeah, it really has. But keep up the great work, Miss Muma. Thank and, you for um, having me very much, yeah. and I, I hope your golf game improves, Bill. Yeah, well, it needs a lot of improvement. <laughs> <laughs> there are many things that need improvement, but that is definitely one on the how how on, uh, on the priority list. That's for sure. <laughs> thank you for being here. Take care. We, we thank appreciate you. it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Trust Company Talks. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bill Noble, Burke Coons, or anyone else are not necessarily those of Trust Company of the South. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be accurate. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. These materials are not intended to be tax or legal advice, and readers are encouraged to consult their own legal tax and investment advisor before implementing any financial strategy.